The longest teacher strike in American history took place in New York City in the fall of 1968. What had happened was the Board of Education created an experiment in community control of schools. The plan for community control was get people on the local school board that represented these kids and would represent us. There were three demonstration districts, and one of these was in a majority black neighborhood in Brooklyn called Ocean Hill Brownsville. When the local board in Ocean Hill Brownsville tried to transfer out 19 teachers who they said were interfering with the experiment, they never intended for this pilot program to have any meaning. The teachers' union pulled all of its members out of the district in protest. When Ocean Hill Brownsville wouldn't take these union teachers back, I can't force those teachers to go back there because otherwise the city will burn down. The union went on strike citywide, first for two days, then for two weeks. Every time the mayor reached an agreement with the union, that agreement fell apart. So when the union went on strike a third time, they escalated their demand. Now they said they would shut down every school in the city until the city agreed to shut down the experiment in Ocean Hill Brownsville for good. So on the first day of strike number three, October 14th, 1968, the leaders of Ocean Hill Brownsville decided to show the city that they were not going to go away quietly. So we met in front of City Hall, never thinking that these many people from all over the city would, would convene with us. Father John Powis is a white Catholic priest who sat on the Ocean Hill Brownsville governing board. But there were literally thousands and thousands of people all in front of City Hall. Among those thousands and thousands of people, there were representatives of black organizations across the ideological spectrum that almost never agreed on anything, from the NAACP to the Black Panthers to local churches. And it was about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and all of a sudden, almost spontaneously, we decided that we were going to simply march across the Brooklyn Bridge. The Brooklyn Bridge has three lanes of traffic going in both directions. But above the main road of the bridge, there's a narrow pedestrian walkway. I've been to a number of rallies down at City Hall, and usually if you want to march across the bridge from there, no matter how many people are in your party, the police will squeeze you through that narrow walkway like a funnel. It keeps commuters happy, especially at rush hour, and has the side benefit of sapping your energy and momentum. At first, this demonstration in support of community control seemed like it would be no different. Right in front of us was maybe 50 police, all the helmets and the sticks, the usual. There was a tense standoff between the cops and the demonstrators. But then, Father Powis watched as the city's human rights commissioner went up to the police and argued with them. He couldn't hear what they were saying, but then to everyone's surprise, the cops just moved out of the way. And then all of a sudden, we were allowed to go right the main road of the bridge. Tens of thousands of people marched across the Brooklyn Bridge, followed overhead by helicopters going live to the evening news. Uh, this march showed that Ocean Hill Brownsville was not just an instance of confrontation, that it was in fact a citywide symbol. Leslie Campbell was a social studies teacher at Junior High School 271 in Ocean Hill Brownsville. And it was a memorable sight to see so many people, a broad cross-section of people in the educational uh, struggle, locked in arm in arm, and it showed a tremendous amount of unity. It showed that we were not going to be denied around this issue of changing the New York City public school system. We marched across the Brooklyn Bridge and our, our destination was really gonna be the Board of Education. But we never even stopped. We started right down Fulton Street. It's a long walk from the bottom of the Brooklyn Bridge to Ocean Hill Brownsville. All the way from the Brooklyn Bridge to Ocean Hill? That's really far. Yeah, about four and a half miles. And we marched right through Bed-Stuy and people on every corner were cheering, shouting, people on their windows, shaking bells. It was a real party night. The movement for community control of schools tapped into something powerful. Black and Puerto Rican parents all over the city were sick of waiting for the powers that be to get their act together. They knew they could educate their own, and they weren't going to take no for an answer. But the movement against community control of schools tapped into something, too. As the face of the city was changing, a lot of white New Yorkers feared that any amount of power gained by black and brown people was a threat to their own. This is School Colors, a podcast from Brooklyn Deep about how race, class, and power shape American cities and schools. In some ways, Ocean Hill Brownsville is like a Rosetta Stone for understanding the New York City school system today. So why is it that 50 years later, most people don't know this history, even here in central Brooklyn? And why is it that many of those who do know about Ocean Hill Brownsville are afraid to talk about it? Let me give you an example. I was recently talking to Lisa Donlan, a fixture on the educational scene here, and I told her we were working on this story, and her reaction was something like, Ocean Hill Brownsville, oof. 
Then she told me about this time when she met a young education staffer in the office of our current mayor. So we're talking, I said, well, something came about Ocean Hill Brownsville. And she goes, what is that? And I was like, wait, you're doing education in New York City and you don't know what Ocean Hill Brownsville is? I was like, what? Do not talk to another person until you've done like some research and you understand where New York education is coming from. But then I asked Lisa for her take on Ocean Hill Brownsville, and that was a bridge too far. Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> so in one breath, she says that everyone should know about this. It's that important, but then doesn't want to comment on it. I know Lisa to be someone who usually doesn't mince words, so that's pretty telling. Well, I think it's emblematic. Ocean Hill Brownsville opened up some deep wounds that have never really healed. For that reason, this story has sometimes been read as a cautionary tale. But it's also been a source of inspiration. In this episode, we'll get into all of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Everybody in that community began to play a role in the schools. The school became the focal point of the community. Our teachers, they said, this is who you are. We're like, what? Have we come to that point of a race war? Is there something that you would characterize as black fascism rising? Is this a district that's going to run on the basis of prejudice and discrimination? It wasn't about hating another culture or race. It was about learning to love your own. It was a campaign of fear. It was a brilliant strategy and it worked. Jewish people would ask me, why are we trying to put them in the ovens? Why do you all have to have guns? Why do we need dogs? We're children. This is America. This is Mark Winston Griffith. And Max Friedman. Welcome back to School Colors. Over the course of the fall of 1968, New York City teachers would be on strike for a total of 36 days. That's 36 school days. Actually, about seven weeks in total. Damn. As a parent, the idea of having to figure out what to do with my kids for seven weeks? I I wouldn't even be sitting here right now. I'll be at home with my kids. Right. Now, times that by a million. Literally, there were more than a million students in New York City public schools. And the teacher strike was hugely disruptive for them and their families. But in Ocean Hill-Brownsville, schools were open for business. Eight schools, six elementary schools, two middle schools, stayed open throughout the strike, staffed by 300 replacement teachers hired over the summer. But most of the city's attention focused on one school, Junior High School 271. Every day, the street in front of 271 was a circus. Union teachers picketing, activists protesting the picketers, police keeping the picketers and the protesters apart, and reporters weaving in and out. Charlie Isaacs was a 23-year-old math teacher at 271. He was no stranger to strikes. In fact, he had organized a student strike in college. I had never crossed a picket line before or since. So it was a sign of how the teacher strike was scrambling leftist politics that Charlie found himself, day after day, doing just that. Well, this wasn't a strike against management. This was a strike against the community, against the kids. And they were nasty. They called people all kinds of names. They called me out by name. I don't even know how they knew who I was. It pretty quickly made it very easy (laughs) to go past those picket lines. Sandra Feldman remembers the nasty name calling going in the other direction. From people like Charlie, people on the side of community control at the union. And she was sent by the union to personally escort striking teachers to picket in front of 271 every day. Teachers were frightened. Uh, they were on the picket lines and they would get yelled at and called names. And it was a very, very painful, it was agonizing for the teachers. A lot of the teachers, especially who had taught in, in that school district for many years and who were committed to the kids. If it was agonizing for the teachers, it was traumatizing for the kids. For me, the scene was a war zone. Cleaster Cotton was a student body president at 271 and lived across the street. There were so many people. There were thousands of police. There were snipers with guns on the roofs. Sometimes there were helicopters. There were police on horses. There were police with canine units, with mean dogs. The reporters with the fedora hats and the little pads with the pencils. The photographers with the light bulbs when they flash it. Veronica G. lived on the corner, right above everybody's favorite sandwich shop. An ideal perch for the police to watch over the scene outside 271. It was on the roof. The police were on her roof. They'd climb through the window, and they'd be up on the rooftop there, looking. 
I saw that people didn't like us for some reason. You know, and it was very painful to see that you're making all of this commotion over children having a proper education. You know, like, you don't, you don't do this over there. If they had fired six black teachers from a white school, it would have been no problem. You understand me? Would have been no strike, no nothing. But for us, it was a problem. And then they say it's all in our minds. What we go through as people of colors, come on. It was fucked up. It was a fucked up feeling with children. Why do y'all have to have guns? Why do we need dogs? You know, I saw those those things that went on down south. It's horrifying. This is America. And what made me feel safe was seeing my teachers on the stairs of 271, facing all of the reporters, all of the police, all of the dogs, the horses, the guns, everything, and making sure that we got through. That was a beautiful feeling. So we're under kind of a state of siege. Math teacher Charlie Isaacs. And the way I described it as being in the eye of the calm eye of the raging storm that had taken over the entire city. But it brought about a, a kind of solidarity among the teachers, the students, and the parents. One of those teachers, the one who made Clister Cotton feel the most safe, standing there at the top of the stairs of 271 every morning, was six foot eight Leslie Campbell. I used to walk through the streets of Ocean Hill at that time, and it was so beautiful. Parents used to come up and tell me to come in the house and have some fish or have some uh, chicken or have some coffee or have a cold drink. These were parents who were pouring out their heart to people who they felt were doing something to educate their children. Here's Rody McCoy, superintendent for the Ocean Hill-Brownsville Demonstration District. Everybody in that community began to play a role in the schools. The school became the focal point of the community. The janitor's union was also on strike, so volunteers from the community had to shovel coal to keep the boilers running, take out the garbage, run the cafeteria, everything. One particular group of young men would patrol the community every day. They'd pick up all of the young people who were late coming to school or trying to play the hook and kept the drugs out and came into the schools and talked to the youngsters about staying in school, the value of education. McCoy saw to it that parents were trained to work in the classroom, which had a profound impact on them and their kids. They began to see and understand that they had something to contribute, that they were just as capable of teaching their youngsters as the teachers were. And with some guidance and some help from the professionals, bingo, they could do it. And so they got involved in all dimensions of teaching, the research, uh, the program evaluations, the teacher evaluations. And now these youngsters who had previously seen 90% of the teachers white are now looking at their parents or the parents of their friends who are teaching. And this new role model was just fantastic. During the strike, every time I went into the schools, particularly 271 or IS-55, I saw something that I thought was so spectacular that I still thought that we were going to win this thing. Father John Powis from the governing board. Something was happening in those schools. I mean, here you had mostly new teachers but you had schools that were completely orderly, where classes were going on, where, and, and people were coming in from the state office of education, from the mayor's office, from the board of education, and they were seeing this, and they were saying, like, you know, who's so stupid as to destroy this? What happened in the classrooms of Ocean Hill-Brownsville received far less attention at the time than what was happening in the streets. But for students like Monifa Edwards, the classroom was life-changing. The education we got during that time when the experiment was truly on, when I say the best education I received in my life. Veronica G. lived on the corner across the street from 271, but she was not enrolled there at the start of the fall. I was on the outside of 271 when all of that chaos was going on, and yet I wanted to go to that school. A lot of parents at the school were keeping their kids home because they were afraid of the police presence out there. But Veronica G. wanted to go there so badly, she transferred into 271 during the strikes. 
And once I got in there and I saw that they had black teachers, like lots of them, not just one, but like, like, like it looked like it was about 10 or 12 of them. It was like a, it was a black school. She had never had even one black teacher before. I knew that there were highly educated black people in the world, but not in Brownsville. Okay, not where I was in my mind. They were in the better places in the world. I asked her what it meant to her to have black teachers for the first time. I can't even describe what it meant, except that it made me feel like somebody was on my side. But this is not how the education in Ocean Hill Brownsville was portrayed to the general public. The union fixated on Leslie Campbell in particular as a symbol of everything they said was going desperately wrong in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. We found a piece of union propaganda with the title Preaching Violence Instead of Teaching Children, an observation of an actual lesson in Junior High School 271. Supposedly, this was transcribed from Les Campbell's social studies class. It's written like a play, so we took this piece of propaganda and we asked some actors to read it. And by actors, you mean my kids. And my friend John as Leslie Campbell. Now, class, ask Timmy questions about our African-American heritage and black power. We have leaders like Martin Luther King, and he tells us to be peaceful. And then we have leaders like Malcolm X and Rap Brown, and they tell us to use violence. Who is right? Timmy, tell him what you learned. Well, I think that Martin Luther King is not so good. Why you don't want to give us anything, so we got to fight for it. Why do we have to fight? Why can't we just demonstrate peacefully like Dr. King? Whitey doesn't listen. The only thing he understands is when we get up and start throwing bricks and Molotov cocktails. What is black power? Black power is controlled by Afro-Americans of three things. The first is political power. The second is economic power. And the third is social. We have 12% of the people. There are 100 senators. Now how many are black? One, and he's Uncle Tom. Now, Timmy, would you like an Afro-American state? Well, I don't know. Sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. Think. Our own state for black people. Hmm. Yeah, I think that would be good. When I interviewed Charlie Isaacs, who became close friends with Les Campbell, the real Les Campbell, when they taught together at 271, I showed him this piece of propaganda. This is totally fabricated. But he did teach black pride, that black people actually do have a history. This was very new at the time in the New York City schools. Campbell taught an intro class, became sort of legendary. The essence of the class was he had a, a map of the world. Monifa Edwards had Charlie for math and Les Campbell for social studies. First, he asked us to show on the map, where's Italy? What are these people called? Italian-American. And if they come from Germany point to that. German-American. Okay, here's France. What would these people be called? And he went through a series of those. And then he opened his arms and said, can anybody show me on this map where Negro land is? Okay, show me where Negro land is, because this is, we were all identifying as being Negro. And the kids just laughed. Where are we from? Africa. So what should we be called? African-American. So the revelation that we came from Africa. If you called me African when I was a Negro, it's fighting words. Africa was just like the continent of Tarzan and Cheetah and, and white Cleopatra. And don't call me African because I will stomp you, kill you. My great-grandmother, I told you, you know, you're, Af you're African-American. No, Af I ain't no African. Before she passed away, she totally embraced it, but so imagine the brainwashing. It may be hard to fully appreciate this now, in 2019, but in the mid and late 60s, American popular culture had not yet fully embraced, at least with any pride, the idea that black Americans were African descendants. In fact, when Camel changed the name of the organization he had co-founded from the Negro Teachers Association to the Afro-American Teachers Association, and then eventually the African-American Teachers Association, it cost them members. So even in 1968, a time of black political awakening, Les Campbell, with his African dashikis and his Negro land lessons, was controversial. 
Some of the parents did, in fact, find me too radical. Uh, I know one particular parent, Elaine Rook, who was the PTA president at Junior High School 271, me and her had a number of confrontations as she found my style uh, too black, uh, too political, too militant. Uh, I remember her son, Anthony, she used to tell him to stay away from uh, Mr. Campbell because he'll get you in trouble. But what Les Campbell and his group of revolutionaries were doing in the classroom has never been forgotten by his students. Clester Cotton, Monifa Edwards, and Sophia De Silva. Our teachers, they said, this is who you are. And we're like, what? This is who you are, boom. This is who you're connected to, boom. And our life forces just got so strong. You couldn't keep us away from books, but books that show our true heritage, our true you know, tradition, culture, identity that connected us with something larger than ourselves. It was all real. It wasn't like they were then saying, oh, now we are the greatest people and you know, but it just, rounded it out where I had heard all of, you know, the uh, European history. Now, wow. I, I guess you can't even fathom it because until you realize that you've been written out of history, you don't realize how much more you have to be written in. You know, a lot of people at that time thought that maybe they were teaching like hatred for whites, but it was never anything like that. It wasn't about hating another culture or race. It was about learning to love your own, to be able to do the things that somebody who had not maybe been enslaved would have been doing in their own, you know, place of origin. But I see that also seems to be a threat. Whenever a class is being taught African history, somehow it's deemed that they're learning to hate another group. In this case, it was deemed that students like Monifa Edwards were learning to hate one group in particular. After the break. Thanks for listening to School Colors. I know we've given you a lot to think about in these first few episodes. So if you're in New York and you want to join the conversation, we're going to host a series of discussion groups at the Brooklyn Movement Center. The first is coming up on Thursday night, October 17th, starting at 6.30, and there'll be childcare. Tell us you're coming by writing to contact at brooklyndeep.org. If you can't make it in person, remember you can always share your thoughts with us on social media. Tag B-K-L-Y-N-D-E-E-P. If you ask a lot of New Yorkers of a certain age, my generation, for example, people in their 70s. Historian Steve Breyer. What they remember about the UFT strike in 1968, you will often get an answer like, isn't that the strike where there was all that black anti-Semitism? That's how they remember the strike as opposed to for, for all the other reasons that it needs to be remembered. Black anti-Semitism. Black anti-Semitism. Black anti-Semitism. Black anti-Semitism. Negro bias against the Jew. Is it true that the school decentralization fight in New York City is really a fight between black power and Jewish power? Reverend Oliver, what about the uh, business of anti-Semitism? What has happened to Jewish-Negro relations? Jewish people would ask me, uh, why are we trying to put them in the ovens? So was there all that black anti-Semitism? Was this a fight between black power and Jewish power? And if not, why is Ocean Hill Brownsville remembered that way? It wasn't anti-Jew, it was anti-miseducation. Paul Chandler was a local community activist. One of those young men Rody McCoy was talking about who would go around the neighborhood picking up kids who were trying to play the hook. The carriers of the virus that was destroying our children were teachers. Now, the majority of them were Jewish. That's how it fell. And not just in Ocean Hill, Brownsville. The majority of the teachers across the city were Jewish. But it wasn't, oh, because they're Jews, they're doing this? I don't think that was even the question. I think the miseducation became, that was part of the, the system. Besides, Paul says most people in Ocean Hill, Brownsville weren't even thinking about who was Jewish and who wasn't among the general wash of white people in power. They were just worried about their kids. That's what I'm saying to you. No one ever walked up to say, are you Jewish or are you Italian or are you Irish? Do you get my point? Another significant point, out of all the young teachers who came to Ocean Hill Brownsville to replace those who were on strike, 70% of them were white and half of these were Jewish, like Charlie Isaacs. Most people, I think, in New York City, maybe in the country, believed that Junior High School 271 was headquarters for black anti-Semitism. And the reality was exactly the opposite. I never experienced 
even one reference to it. Not an insult, not an attack, not anything. It just wasn't part of the fabric of the place. Even UFT president Al Shanker admitted, 20 years after the fact, that anti-Semitism had not been a major factor in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. Anti-Semitism was not, it certainly had nothing to do with starting a strike. It had nothing to do with keeping a strike going. It had nothing to do with the settlement. It had an awful lot to do with how people came to see the strike in public terms. It's unbelievable to hear him say that. Because if any one person is responsible for how people came to see the strike in public terms, it's Al Shanker. Now, there were Jewish teachers in the union who said they had been verbally harassed with anti-Semitic comments, both on the picket lines and when they had tried to go back to school between strikes two and three. This man was standing next to me yesterday evening at Livingston Street, and he and his followers were launching one anti-Semitic diatribe after another, and I can cite chapter and verse of some of the things they said. I think it was utterly revolting that this should be permitted to happen in our city. Now, uh, what positions do the people making those statements hold? What, what is their These job? people were sympathetic to the governing board at Ocean Hill. Were they black? Yes, they were. Can you give me the gist of their comments? Heil Hitler. And Schenker could also point to problematic editorials published by the Afro-American Teachers Association and some other groups. Now, of course, Ocean Hill-Brownsville was not responsible for what was put out by these groups, except that usually if you have somebody supporting you who makes racist remarks, uh, you should repudiate them. Were there instances in the black community of anti-Semitism? But yes. Historian Steve Breyer. Was there anti-Semitism in New York City in a bunch of communities? Absolutely. Did it disappear even in our own time? No, although it's diminished compared to what it was like in the 1960s. I would say the worst perpetrators of anti-Semitism were the WASP elite who kept Jews out of places like Columbia and the, and the, and the private clubs that, that dot the Upper East Side. That was, if you want to talk about anti-Semitism, focus on that. Schenker did not focus on that. Will those black people who are prominent in this particular community Uh, Is this a district that's going to run on the basis of prejudice and discrimination? Is this part of how the governing board operates? Shanker took every minor instance of anti-Semitic, you know, attitudes and ginned them up to be something much larger than they were. Most notoriously with the use of one incendiary leaflet. The union claimed that this leaflet had been placed in teachers' mailboxes to threaten them. I never met a teacher or heard of a teacher, including from those who were on strike, whoever actually saw one of these original leaflets. In fact, the first time Charlie ever saw it was when he got a package in the mail from the UFT with a handwritten note saying, please distribute to your Jewish colleagues. The anonymous leaflet talked about, quote, the so-called liberal Jewish friend with his tricky, deceitful maneuvers, the Middle East murderers of colored people, the money changers and blood-sucking exploiters who were responsible for the serious educational retardation of our black children. Yikes. To this day, nobody knows exactly where the original leaflet came from, but half a million copies were reproduced on mimeograph machines at UFT headquarters and distributed around the city. To me, it feels like this is the nuclear option. Why did they take it? Here's Leslie Campbell with the cynical answer. At the end of Ocean Hill-Brownsville, the teachers' union looked bad. They looked like uh, the aggressors. They looked like the United States Army looked in Vietnam, you see. So they needed to change their image. And one of the ways that they sought to change their image was to bring up this issue of anti-Semitism and say that this was the reason why they were against the district, because uh, the uh, changes that we were demanding were anti-Semitic. The less cynical answer is that Shanker and his union members really believed that black anti-Semitism was a threat. And these two answers are not mutually exclusive. Either way, Steve Breyer says that leaflet did a lot of damage. I mean, that was a conscious effort to manipulate, to create a dog whistle that, you know, if, if there was sympathy for the Ocean Hill-Brownsville community control movement, he did whatever he could to destroy that sympathy. And it, and it worked. It was a brilliant strategy and it worked. The best way for people to make a decision when you've got a conflict like that is to put it all out there and let people make up their minds. And we were in a very tough fight, and that's what we did. We put it all out there. Say what you will about Shanker's tactics. They were certainly effective. He changed the conversation. Instead of talking about systemic racism in the schools, 
or even about workers' rights, everybody was talking about black anti-Semitism. In October, when Mayor Lindsay went to speak at the Jewish Center of Midwood, the audience wouldn't even let him speak. He was heckled until he gave up and escaped out the back door, where 5,000 protesters, including members of a newly formed paramilitary group called the Jewish Defense League, were waiting to kick and throw things at his car as he drove away. Jewish teachers in Ocean Hill-Brownville tried to fight back. They published a letter in the New York Times saying that they had never witnessed any anti-Semitism on the job. But it didn't seem to make any difference. I asked Charlie Isaacs why he thought so many Jewish New Yorkers were so ready to believe the union side of the story. It was a campaign of fear. The union claimed that the lives of these Jewish teachers had been threatened. They claimed that if community control was allowed to exist, the black governing boards would fire all the Jewish teachers and replace them with black teachers. And Jews just wouldn't wouldn't be safe. I mean, on some level, I get it. Think about it. It's 1968. We're not even one full generation removed from the Holocaust. Jewish safety is not an abstract idea. Jewish trauma is real, and Shanker played right into it. But at the same time, as a Jewish person, I gotta say, this really makes me mad. Because it keeps happening. Over and over again, we see white Jews, like Shanker, using Jewish trauma to shut down and take the focus away from black and brown people who are fighting for their rights. And honestly, the more we talk about this, the more I feel like we're sort of doing the same thing, taking the focus away from what the real story should be here. Going back to 1968, it wasn't only Jews who were riled up by the Union's campaign of fear. The rest of what's sometimes called the white ethnic middle class, primarily Irish and Italian Catholics, flocked to the side of the Union too. And most of them didn't do that out of any particular concern for the safety of Jews or love for the UFT. It was because the Union's antagonists were primarily black. And as New York's white ethnic middle class consolidated in opposition to the prospect of black and Puerto Rican power, all sorts of really ugly sentiments were set loose. Before Ocean Hill-Brownsville, a lot of people might have felt like they had to keep their prejudices under wraps. But all that started to fall away. And it felt like the whole idea of New York as a liberal, pluralistic city was coming apart at the seams. Have we come to that point of a race war? Well, I still say it's not certain. I'm more pessimistic about it now than I was, particularly around the New York school strike situation. The New York teacher strike seems to me the worst disaster my native city has experienced in my lifetime. Is there something that you would characterize as black fascism rising? Fascism is one word. Irrationalism, totalitarianism, hatred. You are a white pig, a faggot, a racist. You are an enemy of my people. Who supposedly said that? Teachers in the Ocean Hill-Brownsville section. Basically, we are confronted with two people or two groups of people uh, trying to occupy the same space at the same time. It can't be done. Somebody's got to move over. It's black power versus white power now. You think that's what it's boiled down to? Well, that's what they want it to be. They say they want the black power and they want to rule. So then now the white have to rule also. Remember, this is the fall of 1968. In the middle of the third teacher's strike, Richard Nixon is elected president. The politics of white racist backlash are in full swing. Some people in New York talked about wanting Al Shanker to run for mayor because they believed he was standing up for the white man. But despite all of this, the vast majority of public attention focused on, quote-unquote, black racist or black extremists. We were not extremists. They were extremists in the community. Reverend C. Herbert Oliver, chairman of the Ocean Hill-Brownsville Governing Board. Who wished to take control of things, but we stayed to the issue of education. There was a time when representatives from the Republic of New Africa came and requested a meeting with the Governing Board, and they wanted us to separate from the United States and declare Ocean Hill-Brownsville an independent state and to apply to the United Nations for membership. And our response was immediate, that we were not elected to set up a new nation. We were elected only to run the schools. Of course, the diversity of ideology and attitude among black people in New York City was totally missed by the white press at the time. Sure, there were folks like Sonny Carson from Brooklyn Corps who grabbed headlines by making vague threats against the union, even though he had nothing to do with the day-to-day operation of the district. There were also black leaders who sided with the union and took a lot of shit for it, too like legendary labor organizer Bayard Rustin. But most black teachers across the city believed in Ocean Hill-Brownsville, 
and many of them fought to keep their school buildings open during the strike. At PS21 in Bed-Stuy, parents and teachers slept in the school overnight to stop the custodians from locking them out. And in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, a young teacher named Neil Griffith tried to open his school so the kids would have some place to go. You had seven staff members against 40-something, and I was one of the seven. Because <laughs> <laughs> the seven that went out were the seven black folks, the seven who, in effect, said to their colleagues, fuck you, and don't get in my way because I'm going into that building. They hated us, and we hated them right back. That is, you hated the teachers who ended up going on strike. Um, yeah, because they were, they were the ones calling us funny names as we walked past their line. <laughs> <laughs> Neil Griffith is my uncle, my father's brother. I had grown up knowing about my family's involvement in Ocean Hill, Brownsville, but I had never actually talked to anyone about it in depth until I went to visit my Uncle Nielsen. I'd never heard of Ocean Hill, Brownsville at all until just a few years ago. But when I started looking into it, I found out I also had family involved. My mother's first cousin, Jay Eskin. I was very tense. Very tense. Jay was born in Brownsville, and even though he moved away, he worked at the same elementary school in Brownsville for 33 years. So he was right there when all this was going down, and unambiguously on the side of the union. It was, a, it, was, it was a very difficult time. We wanted to do the right thing by the kids, but this was important. Jay would walk the picket lines every morning, sometimes at his own school, sometimes at 271, sometimes at City Hall. But in the afternoons, in the spirit of doing the right thing by the kids... We started a freedom school in the Butcher's Co-op. The Butcher's Co-op is an affordable housing complex in Brownsville, built originally for members of the Butcher's Union. Okay, Max, uh, I know he's your cousin and all, but we have to pause for a moment and acknowledge the irony in all of this. Here is a group of white teachers standing on a picket line to prevent black students from participating in an experiment in which black educators are trying to create a curriculum of liberation. And then you have these same white teachers who, after they leave the picket line, go to Brownsville and teach black students in a quote-unquote freedom school? <laughs> wow. Well, there was a historic association between at least parts of the labor movement and the civil rights movement. Al Shanker had organized New York City teachers to go down to the March on Washington. Shanker's deputy, Sandra Feldman, took part in the Freedom Rides. A number of union teachers saw themselves in that mold. And Shanker was very successful in painting community control as a fundamentally illiberal project. They want to hire and fire people based on race. And they're teaching hate. All right, Max, but we see this all the time, don't we? At the point black people start talking about fighting for what they consider liberation on their own terms, in ways that don't include white people in leadership, white liberals get real uncomfortable real quick. Okay, fair point. Anyway, it, it was what, two years after we started working on this project that you went to visit your Uncle Nielsen? Yeah. So check this out. I start off by playing some of the tape we already had, including your interview with Jay. Nielsen, whose memory isn't what it once was, recognized Jay's voice immediately and with affection. And I was like, what? what? And this is how we found out that after the strike, your Uncle Nielsen and my cousin Jay actually worked side by side in the same school for 17 years. Nielsen was the principal. Jay was his assistant principal. Even though they had been on opposite sides of the strike, Jay and his wife Bonnie ended up becoming good friends with my Uncle Nielsen and my Aunt Lil. They went to Jay's kids' bar mitzvahs. And in all this time, we had no idea. And as destructive and polarizing as Ocean Hill Brownsville was, Neil and Jay both seemed at peace with what they did in 1968. I hated the situation, but um, as I look back on my movements, I say to myself, you're okay, Jack. <laughs> Just for the record, you're patting yourself on the back. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, you got it, you got it. And it was a hardship. We were out, uh, what, three months? And as a young teacher, we needed the paycheck. But it was important to stand with Al Shanker. And he said we were going to see this thing to the end. And we, and we did. The end of the strikes finally came on Sunday, November 17th. Mayor Lindsay went on the radio to tell the city. I am gratified that the teacher's strike is over and that our children can return to school at once. A trustee was appointed to oversee the experimental district. Union teachers would return and receive full back pay for the weeks they'd been on strike. Clearly no one is fully satisfied. 
But I think everyone in this city realizes that a settlement of the strike and a return to the orderly education is essential for all involved. The governing board had not been party to negotiations. I hope we can begin now to heal the divisions this strike has opened and to turn our attention to the real possibilities for educational greatness this city can achieve. That was a nice thought. The strike may have been over, but the divisions were far from healed. Just because the union had prevailed in the strike, it didn't mean they would necessarily win the day in Albany, where the future of not just Ocean Hill-Brownsville, but the entire school system would be decided. If community control was ever going to overcome the union's momentum, they were going to need all the public support they could get. But that's not how it went down. After the break. Hi, this is Antonine Pierre, the Deputy Director of the Brooklyn Movement Center. As you've heard by now, School Colors is produced by Brooklyn Deep, which is BMC's citizen journalism arm. So keeping it real, we put this podcast together on a shoestring budget. And there's so many more powerful and deeply impactful stories to be told in central Brooklyn. If you want to see more storytelling like this, we need your help. You can donate to Brooklyn Deep at schoolcolorspodcast.com slash support. The end of the strikes had not exactly worked out in Ocean Hill-Brownsville's favor. But math teacher Charlie Isaac says there was a short period, about three weeks after the end of the third strike, that was in some ways the apex of the experiment, the clearest demonstration of what was possible with community control. There were a lot of assemblies and cultural presentations. In many classrooms, the uh, American flag was replaced with the red, black, and green Black Liberation flag. The principal of 271, William Harris, had been suspended, so assistant principal Al Van was in charge. And one of the songs that was very popular at that time with the kids and throughout the community was uh, Oh Happy Days. I think, Oh Happy Days. When Jesus and Anyway, that was very popular at the time throughout the black community, and along with the Negro National Anthem, we always played that every morning. Cleester Cotton remembers this very well. In the morning, and, uh, and we used to just have the Pledge of Allegiance, and nobody yes, would just God. be into it. No, what happened was they did the Pledge of Allegiance, but then they did lift every voice and sing. And you could hear the whole school singing that. I couldn't believe the transformation. They stood up and sang along. We all sang along. The sound of that song went through the whole school every morning. I get goosebumps thinking about it. So this sort of infused the spirit of the strike period back into the school. Well, that ended when the principal came back. Uh, he had a more conventional approach to things, and the chaos came back, too. When striking teachers returned to Ocean Hill-Brownsville, their students were not too pleased to see them. At 271, they'd start chanting whenever a teacher tried to speak, making basic communication impossible. Teachers said the kids had been coached not to allow any education to take place. Kids like Monifa Edwards didn't see it that way. For us, we felt if you were with the UFT, that you weren't with us. I would say at a certain point, it did become, yeah, we'll say you were, the, you were the enemy. The return of these unwanted teachers and the constant presence of police and union observers in hallways and classrooms was taking a toll. No one knew exactly who was who in the school. And the result was just total chaos. All the unity that was there before, all the education that was going on, everything just stopped. Teachers started leaving. For some, it was just too much. You don't gravitate toward teaching because you love conflict. And some of them just couldn't take it. Now, as teachers left, they weren't being replaced by the Board of Education. So we were increasingly short-staffed as the rest of the school year wore on. And this is meanwhile, kids are fighting their guerrilla war against the returning teachers. And as the pressure increased, the black teachers at 271 split into factions. So using the terms that they may have used for each other, it was the revolutionary black militants versus the conservative black bourgeoisie, and everybody took sides. Many of the so-called radicals were members of the Afro-American Teachers Association, and they rallied around social studies teacher Les Campbell. But Campbell wasn't doing himself, 
or the movement any favors. In early 1969, two events began to turn the tide of public opinion against community control and Ocean Hill-Brownsville, and the first centered squarely on Leslie Campbell. Near the end of January, the New York Times got wind of a radio appearance that Campbell had made back in December. Campbell had been a guest more than once on a show on WBAI called Uncle Tom's Cabin, hosted by Julius Lester. But this time... I showed him a poem by Thea Burhan that was a raw response of a 15-year-old youth to what had happened in Ocean Hill-Brownsville. And he asked me to read this poem on the air. The title of the poem was To Albert Shanker, Antisemitism. Now here's how it started. Hey, Jew boy, with that yarmulke on your head. You pale-faced Jew boy, I wish you were dead. I could read the rest of it, but I don't want to. <laughs> I, it's not fun for me to read, and... You know, Campbell was dogged by this really for the rest of his life, and I don't want to contribute to that. He always said that the poem was taken out of context, and that's true. Although, honestly, what did he think was going to happen? The poem seemed to confirm exactly what the Union had been saying for months about black anti-Semitism. Not only that anti-Semitic beliefs were personally held by the leaders of Ocean Hill-Brownsville, by teachers like him, but that they were being taught in the classroom. After the poem became public, the mayor announced that he was opening an investigation into Leslie Campbell and reporters who had previously been sympathetic to community control and painted Al Shanker as the bomb thrower started to change their tune. The next blow against Ocean Hill Brownsville in the press came from journalist Martin Mayer. Here he is on WNYC talking about his new book, The Teacher's Strike. They had very serious troubles at Junior High School 271. And in general, the quality of teaching that I saw, I was not terribly pleased with. 271 had been visited by countless reporters and academics, but Martin Mayer was the first out the gate with a book about it, which was published in February 1969. And it was loaded with inaccuracies and distortions, and it was just terrible. Charlie Isaacs. The UFT sent copies of his book to every member of the state legislature. This was their story, the story they wanted people to believe, and it just kept getting retold. The UFT sent copies of Martin Mayer's book to every member of the state legislature because it was the state legislature that was ultimately going to decide the fate of community control. In fact, the state legislature was set to take up a bill that might have expanded community control citywide, creating governing boards like the one in Ocean Hill-Brownsville all over the city. Al Shanker lobbied hard to make sure that would never happen. I'm not opposed to community participation or even community control. I am against what in those days was called total community control, which means that we can do anything we want and people don't have any civil rights or human rights. Uh, we don't have that in our country. A mayor can't do anything he wants. A governor can't do anything he wants. I didn't want school districts who could do anything they want. At the end of April, Shanker got his way. A decentralization law with the UFT stamp of approval was passed and set to go into effect a year later. This law made it almost certain that the Ocean Hill-Brownsville Experimental District in its current form would be phased out. Between teachers fighting and teachers leaving, and students fighting teachers and this new state law, morale at 271 was low. Eventually, you know, we just couldn't wait for the school year to end. This was the context for junior high school 271's eighth grade graduation on June 13, 1969. Monifa Edwards was the valedictorian. We started this story with the beginning of her speech. Our ancestors were brutally forced to an unknown land to be enslaved and looked down upon as animals by the white man. Now here's the end of it. We students have a responsibility to our people. We are the might and the strength of our race. We of young blood set the pace. We are the hopes, the dreams, the future that must be fulfilled. Black and Puerto Rican students must go on to high school and finish, go to college and finish, and come back to our communities and finish the job that has been left unfinished for over 400 years. Be black, be beautiful, be brilliant, and be yourself. I asked Monifa how she felt reading this today. It feels very odd. Uh, I hear a lot of this being said again today. It's like certain things were not resolved in all these years. As I read it now, it seems uh, youthful, naive, optimistic. And I thought that by now that work would be done. So to read it and see like, oh my gosh, somebody 14 could have written that today is kind of, um, hmm, 
awesome, but not in a great way. <laughs> it's kind of mind-boggling. Three days after graduation, the Ocean Hill-Brownsville Governing Board dismissed every single teacher affiliated with the Afro-American Teachers Association, including Leslie Campbell. Alvan was demoted. He never returned to 271 or to public education. I don't know how to describe it without being vulgar. Uh, I felt betrayed at that point in time that all that we had put into this supporting of Ocean Brownsville at that time, the board and all the struggle that we had gone through and the progress we made with those kids. I mean, it was in that one year was uh, extraordinary. And so I guess I just felt frustrated to the point that I didn't really want, I didn't want to be there anymore at that point in time. Charlie Isaacs returned to 271 in the fall, but not much was the same. All the members of the Afro-American Teachers Association had left. There were more union teachers, and everyone knew the experiment was coming to an end. Things went back to the way they were before, and I think the parent activists and leaders were pretty deflated. By the end of the school year, Ocean Hill-Brownsville had been redistricted out of existence. The eight schools in the experiment were absorbed into the much larger area of District 23, an area whose boundaries just so happened to line up with the power base of a local politician named Sam Wright, who supported the UFT. In the spring of 1970, there was a new school board election. People from the governing board made a decision to boycott that election. It was a very, very low turnout, and Sam Wright Slate won because the people who opposed him didn't vote. <laughs> and that was the end of Ocean Hill-Brownsville. Not the place, but the school district. The moment. A few months later, Reverend Oliver, chairman of the old governing board, went back to 271 to see how things were proceeding under new leadership. I went to IS-271 just to pay a friendly visit, but it was not taken as a friendly visit by those who were in charge, so they called the police on me. So when I saw that, I left, and I just made up in my mind I would never go back into a school again if that was what I would have to face. So I never went back into the schools again. I'm 63 years old. That happened when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. Sophia Da Silva lives in Los Angeles now, but she keeps in touch with a group of her classmates from 271. All of them are artists and educators. You've heard their voices throughout these two episodes. I may not have associated so much at the time how big an impact it had on my life, but my life impacts my children's lives, okay? And I'm just one person out of thousands that was involved in this. So I'm sure that it affects not only that generation, but partially the next generation, whether they know it or not. Natasha Capers is a part of that next generation. And for a long time, she did not know how the movement for community control had affected her. I've lived in Brownsville, Brooklyn, basically my whole life, and never realized that that fight was literally up the block. <laughs> like, I literally passed history when I ever I walked towards the C train. <laughs> never realized it. And she has personal and professional reasons to know this history. She's both a parent in Brownsville and the director of the New York Coalition for Educational Justice, the largest group dedicated to grassroots organizing of black and brown parents in the city. No one talks about this. Like, it not just, not only changed New York City, it changed how we think about school governance across the country. And yet... People still don't know that this happened and that this happened here and that this happened in a community that is often demonized that is often seen as violent, that is often seen as low educational um, value, that we don't care about student achievement and we don't care about school. And I was like, this was a fight led by mostly Black and Puerto Rican parents right here. But yet, y'all still be talking about how don't nobody care. And yet we changed our whole world. You welcome. The movement for community control of schools in Ocean Hill-Brownsville did change the world, in big ways and small, for good and for ill. Most tangibly, the map of school districts in New York City we still have today is a product of the decentralization law which was passed in the aftermath of the UFT strikes. Several characters continue to fight for quality education and self-determination in central Brooklyn. We'll catch up with them in the next episode. 
teachers in the three demonstration districts, not just in Ocean Hill-Brownsville, but also in East Harlem and on the Lower East Side, they pioneered African-centered and bilingual education, and some of their innovations continued in the public system even after the experiments were dismantled. And who knows how much more the demonstration districts might have been able to demonstrate if they had had more time. If they'd been allowed to flourish, they might have been able to provide some interesting lessons and approaches that could have been adopted. No guarantee it would have worked. No guarantee that this would have solved the problems of New York City public education, but it would have been damn interesting to see where they went. Then there are the big picture political consequences. Ocean Hill-Brownsville gave rise to a powerful new political coalition. Thanks in part to the union's propaganda, many Jews came to identify for the first time with their traditional rivals, Irish and Italian Catholics. And some historians argue that this consolidation of the so-called white ethnic middle class was enough to tip the balance of New York City politics in favor of racial conservatism for decades, giving us mayors like Ed Koch and Rudy Giuliani. That might be a bit much to lay at the feet of just this one event. But the strikes undoubtedly weakened both the labor movement and the racial justice movement by pitting them against each other, making them appear incompatible. And Steve Breyer believes that at least in New York, the split between the teachers' union and the communities of color has never really healed. It was so far away from that spirit of, you know, community control and community militancy that really drove the movement in the late 60s that I fear we'll never get back to it. And I think that's, to my mind, the takeaway from what happened in 1968 was the union won the battle and we've lost the war to kind of create, uh, you know, a much more broadly based movement around educational equity. You know, in 1968, people were talking about a revolution. This is Dr. Lester Young. He's a big deal in central Brooklyn education circles. A former principal and superintendent, now a member of the New York State Board of Regents. He started as a teacher in Bed-Stuy in the fall of 1969. People were talking about real change, substantive change, taking matters into their own hands. Down at 271, you could actually see parents standing up to the police, right? And parents really articulating what they wanted. And they weren't backing down. They weren't letting it go. And there was a coalition of parents around the city that were all saying the same thing. To be honest, it's hard to imagine the kind of sustained grassroots mobilization we saw around community control happening today in central Brooklyn, let alone citywide. People associated that with being part of what I would call the movement, whether you thought it was black power, whether you thought it was civil rights, but you felt like you were part of something that was bigger than yourself. And I continue to ask myself, what happened? That's the question, isn't it? What happened? What happened to the movement that made you feel like you were a part of something bigger than yourself? What happened to the system known as decentralization that was put in place across New York City instead of community control? On the next episode of School Colors. Everybody was not corrupt. The government was hostile. Everyone is just in survival mode. The pressure that we went through as children killed many of us. It was perfect. It was perfect for my mind, body, and spirit to be able to be someplace where I could feel like a human. And then she came over and she hit me. This is what goes on when you let them run the schools. School Colors is a production of Brooklyn Deep with support from the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools and the Carnegie Corporation of New York. This episode was produced and written by Mark Winston Griffith and Max Friedman. Editing and sound design by Elise Blennerhassett. Production associate, J.S. Sundanesh. Original music by Avery R. Young and the Deacon Board. Additional music in this episode by Chris Zabriskie and Blue Dot Sessions. Archival material courtesy of WNYC, the New York City Municipal Archives, the Henry Hampton Collection at the Washington University Libraries, and Professor Steve Breyer at the CUNY Graduate Center. In this episode, you heard the voices of John Mincy, Manok Joe Griffith, and Ayodele Joe Griffith. Special thanks to Monifa Edwards and the Brooklyn Five, Charlie Isaacs, Leo Casey, Norm Hill, Heather Lewis, Rhody and Carol McCoy, Fred and Judy Nauman, Dan Perlstein, and Gerald Podere. Follow Brooklyn Deep on Twitter and Instagram at B-K-L-Y-N-D-E-E-P. 
You can find more information about this episode, including a transcript at our website, schoolcolorspodcast.com. Brooklyn Deep is part of the Brooklyn Movement Center, a member-led organizing body in central Brooklyn. Visit brooklynmovementcenter.org to join or donate. Till next time. Peace.